double your chances of getting funded with Become Investable. I'm your host, Kevin Valley. Joining me today, we have Alicia Cooper. And our special guest today, the CEO and Managing Director of JMMB Bank, Trinidad and Tobago, Nigel Romano. Thank you. It's good to be here. Nigel, thank you for joining us today. So, nine years in Asia? 15 years in Asia. 15 years in Asia? Yeah. Okay, so how was that like? How was Asia like? Well, Asia was an eye-opener. I started in Indonesia. Spent three years there before moving to Hong Kong in 1999, where I spent another five years, then moved on to Singapore, spent a year, came home for a year and a half, and then moved back to to Manila in the Philippines. So Indonesia was a baptism of fire. A baptism of fire? Yeah, because I was there during the, the financial crisis. The financial crisis started in... Thailand in July 1997, when Thailand devalued the, the baht. And then there, there was a competition between Thailand, Indonesia, the Philippines to keep competing. And at that time, the rupiah was at 2300 to the US dollar. Wow. That was in July. No, that, that was good. <laughs> it had moved from 2296 when I got there. To 2300 one year later. And then, as I said, the, the, the Thais devalued the baht. And by the end of 1997, we closed the books at 5000 to the US dollar. And we thought the worst was behind us. In fact, one of our senior executives, Victor Menezes, visited. I made a presentation to him and we said the worst was behind us because the IMF had come in November. It signed an agreement, and everybody thought, well, yeah, the worst is behind us. The agreement is in place, no problem. And the first working week in January, Suharto, who was the president at the time, he basically told the IMF where to go to shove it. And by the middle of January, the rupiah was at 17,000 before closing the month at 12,000. And so for me, this was, uh, I had a, a front row seat at seeing an economy in free fall and meltdown and experiencing flight equality because people were literally driving up to Citibank with bags of money in their cars because they were running from the local banks and putting their monies in, in city. And then you've heard about 40 basis point spreads, right? You were making 40% spreads on basically what was risk-free money because we were paying 30% on deposits and invested in Indonesian treasury bills at 70%, 7-0. It was an interesting time. The rupiah today is trading around $13,000, so it never really recovered from that, but it has been re- reasonably stable since then. And then... In Hong Kong, we experienced SARS, so we lived through SARS in Hong Kong. <laughs> <laughs> so you enjoyed yourself? You enjoyed, oh, you no, like, it was great, great. Were you, great. were you scared for your life? Not really, no. I went to work with my mask and stuff, so it was never a problem. You actually evacuated from Indonesia in 1998. In, in fact, I'm going to show you, I'm going to send you the, the photo. 
because you were on the front page of the of the Newsday, and the headline read, "Trinidad's Fleet Jakarta Riots." Wow. Okay. <laughs> how you end up in Indonesia, though? How do you end up in Asia? Like, how did how did that happen? Well, um, I was working in Citibank in Trinidad. I spent six years working with City in Trinidad. And I left after six years because there was really nowhere to go in Trinidad. I was a CFO. I joined as a CFO. We had transformed the bank in Trinidad. And I joined Ernst & Young in 1994 as their corporate finance and tax part. And two years later, one of our city bank we still did work for city. And the head of tax for the Latin America and the Caribbean visited and we were talking and she said that my former boss was looking for CFOs for four countries. And she said there was Venezuela, Colombia, Indonesia, and India. And you picked Indonesia. I chose Indonesia. Why? Indonesia sounded like a, a, sounded a little more exotic, a yeah, more, more exotic, more interesting place. And I really enjoyed it. I loved it. My wife thought she would have to wear a hijab and all kinds <laughs> of stuff. And that did not prove to be the case. It, it's quite liberal in okay. terms of, of dress. So. Okay. So all this hyperinflation and everything noted, yeah. right? What was the funding environment like in Indonesia, in Singapore, Asia, all these places? Yeah. So in terms of businesses coming to access funding or so? You didn't have as much venture capital and that kind of stuff as you have today. A lot of it was bank finance. And we did a lot of, of financing. Indonesia, like Trinidad, is oil and gas. And then they have certain parts, like, like our Tobago, Bali would be their Tobago. Uh, Bali and Lombok. So where they had the, um, the earthquake in Lombok this week. We have actually visited Lombok. Lombok is right next to Bali. But Bali is their main, one of their main tourist destinations. Very, very much a, a, a number one destination for the Australians and the Singaporeans, that kind of stuff. So. Okay. So in terms of the culture from the financiers, so is it much like Trinidad and maybe some of the other conservative areas in the Caribbean where we like to give loans and debt? We like to be almost 100% sure how much money we're making from this investment, how much money we're making from this loan. Would you say they're more open-minded? They're like more like... I think they're more entrepreneurial, okay. particularly the Hong Kong people. Hong Kong people, I mean, I, used to tell, I tell people all the time that the minute you land in Hong Kong, you can feel the, the energy. Hong Kong, I believe, is one of the most, the greenest cities in the world. Because, you know, everybody sees, see the high rises. But remember, it's very, it's very hilly, very mountainous. And right behind any of those high rises is tropical rainforest. So I spend my weekends hiking in Hong Kong. And the beauty about Hong Kong is that in five minutes, no matter where you were, you could be on a hiking trail and away from, from the, the hustle and bustle. And the hustle and bustle was very real. In a city center, and yet you're so close to a rainforest yeah, and stuff. Yeah, and that's what that's one thing that I loved about Hong Kong. Okay, but in terms of finance and the banks, and maybe investment banks and investors approach the finances. Were they interested in investing in companies? You know, patient Both. capital. Both. You had 
you had the big Chinese uh, conglomerates, and a lot of them were, were, were family-owned, Li Kaxing, et cetera, et cetera. And then you had the multinationals. So you had the Citibanks, JP Morgans, HSBCs, all of them were right there. And the traditional finance was definitely present, but you had a lot of deals going on, constant deal flow in Asia. At that time, the high-tech thing was not big, but people would be investing in, in, in startups in, in China, for Guangzhou and, and, and southern China, where you had a lot of contract manufacturing and that kind of stuff. Okay, so it's pretty similar to the markets here in the Caribbean. I would say so, yeah. But maybe a lot more sophisticated and, of course, a lot bigger because you're talking millions and millions of people. Indonesia, when I was there, was 220 million people. Jakarta alone was like 20 million. So if you take it to 2018 now, nowadays, entrepreneurship is a new fashion statement. It's glorified and everything. And when they go to get finance, you know, they say banks, they're too rigid. They don't understand them. They're not innovative. What are your thoughts on that? Are they right? Well, banks use other people's money. That's the essence of banking. Cheap deposits, and they leverage those deposits for other people's money. Therefore, when you get to a bank, I keep saying people say all the time that you go to a bank for credit. In most cases, you go to a bank with credit, which is your credibility. And you have a value, a proposition that is bankable, meaning that the, the risk is manageable. With a startup, you literally taking a bet. And to take that bet, the first thing we want to see is if you have skin in the game. Have you put your money, your livelihood on the line? And therefore, the first thing you look for is bootstrap financing. So you, you put everything to, that you have together to do it. Friends, family. That's how you, you, you build a startup. You don't go to, to a bank to build a startup. And if you go to the bank, you're going to the bank with the backing of family or friends who instead of maybe putting money in, are willing to, to guarantee a, a loan from a bank. All right, so let's say, and I feel like I asked you this when you, when you spoke on this topic yeah. on financing innovation and stuff back in November. So what if... The person doesn't have that, that many means, that many, that many resources at hand. How do they go ahead bootstrapping? Uh, they mortgage their houses, <laughs> they stop eating, whatever. Sorry. In other words, feed your business. Yeah. <laughs> I think I've, I told you this before. Are you committed to your business or your lifestyle? And that's one of the things you look for. Is the person in business to be able to, to flash an X5? as opposed to take public transport and walk, mortgage your car, sell the car, whatever, because you, you believe in the idea and then making a success of the idea. I don't know. I mean, I'm thinking, so you don't have much resources. You have your car, whatever. But you have your brains and your idea and your passion. And then does it also come to trying to convince other people? Well, and if you can't convince friends and family, why should a bank invest in? Or a professional 
venture capitalists. I mean, when you look at Shark Tank, the first thing they ask is, so how, much, how many of these things have you sold? Or what's your revenue like? And if the answer is no, you're not going to be listening to it. It stops right there because you have not convinced anybody to buy your product or your service. So what's your value proposition? And if you have not been able to sell it, why should I believe in you? And I think a lot of people don't appreciate that. I'm with you. I'm with you. I actually gave a similar talk maybe the month before that conference to a group of young professionals. And I focus it on one central point, de-risking the investment. And I want to compare some notes with you now. So I made four bullet points. Because, you know, in those presentations, you get three to five points, right? So I I found four. So the first thing I said was, get the right team. And I know you're huge on teamwork. The second thing was, know your industry and your target customer. Because many people, the first thing they say is, well, this is brand new. This has never been done before. We have no competition. But the thing is, well, before that, people were getting by just fine, right? So there must have been some sort of substitute. You know, the third thing, put some skin in the game, just like you just said. Right. But sometimes skin in the game is not only money. It's also the time. Yeah, but it's, you have something called sweat equity. You're right. And the way they're testing the, prog- testing the product, you're testing the market. And the final thing is be authoritative. Your proposal, your pitch, your data, you, you must have, it must be empirical. It must be able to stand up to scrutiny. So if you came to me, so the guy who you just left, that you saw me talking to, he's a young entrepreneur. So I have been pushing him because he came with the idea and I, and I sent him away with a lot of questions. So he came back to me with some of the answers to those questions. The point is that he has the ideas. He has tried out some of the ideas. He has been successful with some of the ideas. So now we're talking to the next, the next phase. Humility, hunger, and humanity. Those are my three things I look for in the person. Humility, hunger, and humanity. Yeah, and, and humility for me is simple. Knowing what you don't know and being very curious and open to, to ideas. You know, it's interesting. You know, lots of entrepreneurs, they're so married to the idea. Right, so and are they married to the product or the service? Or are they married to the solution, to the problem they're trying to solve? Because if you focus on the problem, then you widen. Because there are a number of ways to solve the problem. And you may have one way, but there are always alternatives and substitutes. And if you're not aware or concerned about those substitutes, you're going to be, you're going to get yourself in trouble. Because the substitute will come along and end the you. Blackberry, Kodak. So for me, that's very, very important. And as I said, the other one is hunger. So you really have to, you have to be passionate about what you're doing. And you should be passionate about solving problems, not about selling stuff. But you mean you have to sell too? Yeah, but you're selling the solution. Right. Uh-huh. Not the product. <laughs> so you need to get from the point from point A to point B. How many ways are there to get from point A to point B? How do I make it easy to get from point A to point B? Right? So hunger and then the humanity. And for me, that speaks to being people smart, understanding people and how to work with people, the team. 
Yes, the team. So yeah, yeah, you stress a lot about the team. So let's talk about the team. What sort of team you look for? Is it background, motivation, a track record? Well, you have to have people who are bright and can help you to craft the solution. But do you look for people who have strengths that you don't have? Of course. And I think it was Ray Dalio. Yes. Did you hear the podcast with Ray Dalio and... Tony Robbins. No, and Adam Grant? No, no, I didn't. I, I listened to that one. I listened to that one. That was a really good one. The podcast was on how to love criticism. And it was Ray Dalio talking about radical transparency. Yes, yeah. And the importance of having a challenge network. Because everybody talks about their support network. You know, their parents, their friends, that kind of stuff. Yeah. He says, okay, those are the people who are going to say, yeah, no You're problem, okay. everything good, <laughs> right, right? He said, but you have to have the challenge now to the people who say, look, you're doing real nonsense. Yeah. Stop it. And it's very important to have that network. So, and this is what Ray did after he failed the first time. Okay. He surrounded himself with people mm-hmm. brighter than him and who would tell him, when he was doing nonsense. Right. Keep you humble. Keep exactly. you grounded. Because after you, let's say you, because you're humble, assuming somebody has that humility and they fail the first time, then, you know, the next step, of course, there's a mourning period usually. <laughs> They're emotional people. <laughs> and then you have to pick up and move on. So it's the next step then to find another team, find the right guidance. How do you advise that person who just failed? Fail again. Feel faster, feel better. Right. Because that's what you're doing. You're learning and and you're growing. And don't see failure as, ooh, I'm done. But did I learn from this? Mm -hmm. How do I learn from this? How do I adjust? How do I tweak? Just today I was listening to a podcast about a scientific approach. So, you know, you test one hypothesis. And if that hypothesis doesn't check out, then you know, okay, cross that off and you're closer to the solution. So you're drawing a parallel between that and how you approach failure. So try one approach, it doesn't work. You say, yes, so I know this doesn't work. So so there are a number of other things that could work. Yeah. I like that idea of the challenge network, though. Yeah, yeah. Adam Grant is my new best friend kind of stuff. He's awesome. Because the point he is making is that criticism is hard. And no matter who you are, your first reaction to criticism is either fight or flight. Yeah. So I'm going to run away from it or I am going to block it out. And he says the ego jumps into action one time and the ego actually censors what you're hearing. Yeah. In the podcast, they said, so you have two scores. The first one is the criticism. Mm-hmm. So you did something and the person says, hey, you did total nonsense. So that's your first score. The second score is the more important one. How do you respond to the criticism? And then you rate yourself and he says, go and ask your challenge network. So how did I do? How did I take the criticism? Because that is the importance. Do you think the delivery of the criticism then? Absolutely important. Here, I I can show you. So this is from a book called Crucial Accountability. So this teaches you how to have a difficult conversation. Ah. So the first thing they say, get unstuck. Mm-hmm. Secondly, you start with heart. Then your stories. Right. Because we all have stories. Separate facts 
from and stories. stories we tell ourselves. Of course. Okay, right. And those yeah. stories are usually, she doesn't like me. Alicia does not like me. She's out for me. Watch for three clever stories, right? Okay. Victim, villain, and helpless. And then tell the rest of the story. Ask. So going back to the podcast, I was listening this week to Brene Brown talking to Oprah about rising strong. And Brene Brown talks about stories. We all have stories. And stories get in the way of interaction. Yeah, yeah. It's been very interesting because I started with, with Oprah. I listened to Hidden Brain. I listened to Freakonomics. And Adam Grant has a podcast yeah. on work life. And work life, yes. And I find them so useful, so so informative. Indeed, right? It's like an audiobook. Oh yeah. Yes. But I don't like audiobooks. I like the podcast. <laughs> because I like, I have the, the conversations are so important. Mm-hmm. And so when I exercising in the morning, that's what I'm doing. So I exercise for an hour and I listen to a podcast or two. So we spoke a little bit about knowing your industry and your target customer mm-hmm. when entrepreneurs come and say, okay, we have no competition or they can't really provide much data to back so, that up. Part of the problem I think with a lot of entrepreneurs is that they don't identify who their customers are. And I mean very specifically, yes. these are the customers and these are my customers. I have sold to them and they're very happy. Oh, you mean actual sales? Well, actual customers. Oh. So in other words, one, yes, you have your customer. How do you define that target market? How do you dimension what the opportunity is? And the second one is, who or what is the competition? And you don't identify the competition in terms of a product or a service, but another way to solve the problem. Okay. All right, so if you were to be very detailed there. So how do we advise entrepreneurs to go about doing this? Just to make sure they don't make that, that mistake. Because it's easy. I mean, they could, they could understand it theoretically. Yeah, they're probably competition out there. But when they get so married to the idea, just like we were saying before, and they come in and they're so headstrong, it's like, no, nobody else is doing it this way. This is different. I know what I'm talking about. Well, the, so again, I would then ask, okay, what problem are you solving? All right. And why? Should I use your solution? And why should I pay you to use your solution? For me, those are the critical questions that need to be answered. What about the entrepreneur who is solving a problem that people don't necessarily, we don't all accept that we have? So, for example, there was nothing really like the iPhone in that with music and telephone and camera and everything bundled into one. But the marketing genius behind them is everybody all of a sudden needed to have this type of product. Again, they didn't start off with the product. Right, yeah. But they kept looking for ways to hook it to the product. For me, the, the genius of the iPhone was, you know, that you didn't have to worry about, about the keyboard. Right. Because yeah, the so, keyboard yeah. immediately limited your ability. Now, I wish I had developed the iPhone. And somebody else developing the iPhone would have done something different. Right. All right? But the point is, the, the, the problem they were solving was the ability to communicate. And at the same time, do all this other stuff with that device. I mean, for me, the, the even bigger 
example is 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 on Jeff Bezos and Amazon. Yes, yeah. And that's about supply chain and getting stuff to people as quickly and as easily as as possible. I think he said he wants he wants to be the everything store for everyone. And he is almost there. Yes. I was telling somebody that the next the next problem he's going to be solving is healthcare. Hopefully, <laughs> no, delivering that... delivering medical supplies, medical supplies, and and that kind. Yeah, of stuff. I mean, they already did the whole groceries. They're thing. doing groceries. Yeah, I have friends who them. use them in Trinidad even for groceries for built like bulk groceries. They'll buy it on Amazon. like snacks, like no, like cereal or you know, if you can get big boxes. So they so don't want to go to the grocery store at the corner that they're going online. They're gonna wait for their skybox. It actually could be cheaper, even with the skybox. Yeah. yeah. Even the price marts and all these guys. <laughs> I have to tell you that the kind of margin these guys still making. Wow. Okay. Let's say a business owner comes and approaches GMB for financing. What's the was the first thing that you all look for? Well, so most banks will tell you what collateral do you have? The whole five C's and all of that. Yeah, but the, <laughs> the, the, the point is what we try to do is to look at the business proposition. And would this business generate the cash flows necessary to support the financing? And if that fails then, as opposed to starting with, what collateral do you have? And I'll then just say, I really don't care about your business proposition. And what invariably happens or could happen in, in the latter situation is that you end up selling the people's property. And you don't want to do that. Yeah, it's not fun actually claiming on collateral when a loan goes bad. A lot of people, when they approach a loan finance, and I say, the business case might be dicey. Maybe there's a 50% chance that you get the cash flows that you're looking for. But hey, I have collateral. You know, so what do you say to those people? So the, the question I would ask is, here's the opportunity. What could go wrong? And... Can you live with what could go wrong? Are you sure you are one willing to sell your house and put your mother on the street if this business fails? So if the answer is no, how can we mitigate this risk? What else can we do to ensure that the probability of what could go wrong going wrong is reduced? That's the conversation we need to have. So a lot of people look at the opportunity. They don't look at the, the risk. They don't identify what could go wrong. Right. All right? And if you don't do that, and then ask the third question, can I live with the result if it goes wrong? So if you look at, at, at investing as opposed to entrepreneurship. What we all should be trying to get to, the place we should be trying to get to, is a place where our passive income covers all our living expenses. Yes. All right? Passive income. So I can sleep whole day, I can scratch whole day, and my expenses are covered because of my investments. Um, Whether it's real estate, equities, whatever. Passive income covers my expenses, my 
day to day living expense. And that is very, very important. A lot of people don't think about that. And of course, the first check you write is to the one to your savings account or your investment account. Because as they say, this is the guys who wrote um, the five day weekend, interesting book. They were saying that what you want to do is to ensure that you put aside the money first. Because I think it's, it's, can't remember the law it is, Peter's principle, whatever law, work expands to meet the time allotted. Mm-hmm. Well, the variation to that is that expenses increase to the amount of revenue generated. And to stop that, what you want to do is to put aside the first... Hiding money from yourself. Yes. <laughs> put it away. I don't touch it. That's not available. You have to have a structure and a system and a plan in place to make sure you protect that wealth. All right. Nigel, thanks a lot for your time. Thanks a lot for your pointers and your wisdom. And thanks a lot for those stories on uh, the inflation in Asia. Wow, that was a serious eye-opener. You don't ever want to see our currency meltdown like that. Because one of the things we did, think about it. We would be at lunch every day, all the expats, of course, together, and we're talking, and we said, wow, the rupiah is at 17,000. What should we do? You know the answer was? What was the answer? Go shopping. (laughs) (laughs) Indonesia has some of the most beautiful furniture in the world. I ask because you would be earning a different currency. He's an expat, right? (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, being an accountant, because you were the um, uh, financial controller for Citibank and those times, like, how do you, when when you're balancing your books at the end, not balancing your books, when you're doing your accounts at the end of the fiscal year, the end of the quarter, doing your reports and that stuff, and you're just seeing all this inflation happening, because I'm sure you guys sort of been dealing with other countries. Yeah, yeah. Especially being a multinational bank. Right, so how was that though? Oh, that was hugely interesting. In fact, I'll give you another story. We used a, an accounting system called Cosmos. Cosmos. It's used by Citibank all over. And we realized in September or October 1997 that we had a problem because the British pound went across over the 10,000 rupiah back in October, November 1997. And we realized that our accounting system could not translate more than those six digits. So they had to adjust, they had to rewrite the program to cater. Because once it did for the U.S. dollar, we would have a problem doing this translation at the end of the month. So we told the guys, I think they were in Singapore at the time, guys, you have a problem, you need to fix this. So they said, well, how long do you need we say, well, the way it's going, maybe five or six months. And then January happened, and we were over 10,000. Between closing the books at 5,000 to the, to the dollar, and the middle of the month, we had 17,000. So we had to close the books using Excel. That. <laughs> no, <laughs> Excel. At the end of January, yeah. Wow. Very interesting. Very interesting indeed. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Special thanks go out to Nigel Romano for joining us on this episode. If you found this episode useful, share it with a friend. Subscribe at becominvestable.com 
slash subscribe. Give us a five-star rating in your podcast player of choice. Until next time, we are out. We are out.